Welcome to Hillside Community Church's weekly podcast. We're glad that you've chosen to listen to this week's message and hope that it ministers to you today. Hillside's located in Keller, Texas, and if you would like to know more about us or to listen to previous recordings, please visit us at yourhillside.com. And now, this week's message. Okay, Tove, today's going to be a little bit different uh, than we normally uh, do things around here. Uh, and so it's a little different for me. But I want to uh, have a conversation with you. We had, uh, we titled this series Feast or Famine, and that grows out of uh, a pivotal chapter in Proverbs, it's chapter 9. Chapter 9 concludes, 1 through 9 is the conclusion to that section, Proverbs. And it opens the door to the second section, which goes all the way to the end of Chapter, chapters 1 to 9 are long discourses. After, after chapter 9, you get these short, a little bit more short, sort of pithy wisdom statements. And so what happens in chapter 9 is sort of pivotal. And it, is it, it becomes an invitation. It's an invitation to, to one of two banquets, and you can only choose one. At one of them, you're going to be served a feast. At the other one, you're going to be served uh, a far less satisfying meal, maybe a soul-destroying meal. And it's the difference between wisdom and foolishness. So that's the series. And so all week long, I have been studying Proverbs 9, and I've been trying to get us prepared for how that's going to open the series. But as I was doing the background on Proverbs, I had some nagging things in my head that I think we needed to address before we even do the introduction. So this would be kind of a preface. So if you're attending Hillside, this is different than normal, and it's because I kind of want to just have a conversation with you about some concerns I have about us going into Proverbs. And the concerns grew out of my own thinking and out of uh, studying the background of Proverbs. Normally, when I've done a, a, a any kind of sermon on Proverbs, I just, you just pick one, and then you just sort of go into it. But rarely, but I've never actually looked at the book as a whole and said, we need to address some things theologically before we go into the book. So I want to do three things with you, really. I want to uh, talk to you about my concerns, and they really are, first of all, the motivation for the series. What's the motivation? Second one would be expectation of the series. And then the third one would be a question that I have for you that I'll ask you at the end. So in that regard, let me just say this. So I have been studying Proverbs since I was in high school. Uh, When I was in high school, I became a Christian at 14 in 10th grade, and I immediately started to attend a Christian school. Bible teacher loved Proverbs. So he had us memorizing Proverbs, studying Proverbs all the time, and I, this is my very first Bible. My father gave it to me on September 21st, 1978. And when I open it, if you go to it, and, 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 and this is the book, I, I mean, I read it, I did a lot of reading as a kid because I fell in love with the scriptures, but Proverbs, when you get to Proverbs, uh, it falls apart because I was in here a lot, especially as a high school kid needing to know how to do life it was so valuable to me. So, um, so I truly love it. And there have been a few that have stayed in my head as 
to this day, I, I mean, I, I thought, well, let me, let me give them a few. It was hard to pick four that come to my mind literally on a daily basis. They come to my mind. So I want to show you a couple of them. Uh, here's, here's the first one. Uh, I don't know if I'm actually in control of this or not because it never does anything I'm, I'm, I'm telling it to do. All first service, it never did anything. Uh, so here's the first one. My, one of my favorites taught it to my kids when they were very young. All of them could quote it to you. He who walks in integrity walks securely, but he who perverts his way will be found out. Love this verse. Comes to me literally daily as I'm making decisions uh, on life every day. Things that no one will ever be in the room about. Things that I do when I'm by myself. Things that I do when no one would ever see me. Am I going to do the right thing even though nobody's watching? This verse comes to my mind. So he who walks into integrity walks securely. That means he lives boldly and he sleeps well at night. He never has to worry about somebody knocking on his door and going, we know what you did. And I'm going to tell you, that is a horror. It's a horror to go to bed at night wondering if you're going to get caught doing what you did. And so walking securely, but he who perverts his way, in other words, twists reality. You twist things. That's the idea of perversion. You just start to live a twisted life. Lies. You, you, don't, you don't know who you are. The, the world just starts to cave in. Every one of us understand what that feeling is like. And you usually get caught. Some way, shape, or form, you're going to get caught. And it's a horror to live with. So this verse right here helps me remember, I need to be a man of integrity, even when people aren't looking. So I love that verse for that reason. Um, the second one that I love when I was in high school that I learned right away was because Proverbs 3 to 7 deal with a father speaking to his son about sexual purity. That makes up a great deal of the text. Well, one of my favorite pictures in that text that has stayed with me literally since high school was, can a man, sexually speaking, can a man take fire in his bosom and, and in his clothes and not be burned? So it compares sexuality to a fire. You're playing with fire when you're dealing with sexual issues. And, or can a man walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? It's a powerful text. This is, a, sexual issues are like managing fire. The word take fire in his bosom is the idea of carrying fire. How do you carry fire? Well, back in that day they had a fire pan. And the fire would be on the pan and you'd carry the pan. No one carried fire against his skin. That's what he's saying. That's what happens when you're sexually impure or immoral. It's like putting fire against your own skin. It's damaging in ways that are profound. And then this idea here, can a man walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? In wisdom literature, feet uh, is a euphemism for the male sexual organ. And I think one commentator had this right when he said this. Here's what he's saying. Touch a hot woman inappropriately and you burn more than your fingertips. powerful statement on sexual purity. Ever since high school, I've understood you cannot, you cannot mess around with sexual kinds of things because you'll get burned. You cannot survive that any more than you could survive fire on your skin. Always been in my head. Then there's another one that I love, and if you're a pet owner, you'll really love this verse. It's so profound, but it seems so simple. A righteous man has regard for the life of his animal, and the animal's a 
four-legged domestic animal. A righteous man has regard for the life of his animal. He treats his animals well. That's what it says. So if you're mean to a dog, you're mean to an animal, this will unmask your true character, how you treat your animal. Okay? But even the compassion of the wicked is cruel. You say, what is he saying here? This is a real oxymoron, a cruel compassion. This is an argument from lesser to greater. If you don't treat animals well, who's to expect that you'll treat humans well? That is the picture in the text. Now, for you pet owners who love pets more than people, this is a good verse for you. First of all, if you have an animal and you get angry, we all get upset at our dogs or a cat, whatever it is you have every now and then, you get upset at it. How you treat your dog? I mean, I don't ever do anything with the dog without thinking of this verse right here. What kind of man are you? You wanting to kill your dog. I wanted to kill my dog. <laughs> and see, here's the thing about an animal, and the point of the text is, an animal does not tell you what they need and want. They can't communicate with you. You have to be in tune with them. You got to know what they are, you got to be alert, and then you got to be responsive to their needs. If you can do that to an animal, how much more to a human who you do know what their needs are, and, you, and they can communicate their needs. So if I'm scratching the dog, you know, at night, and Gail says, why are you scratching the dog? Rub my feet. Why? Rub my feet. So this one over here is telling me exactly what she wants. This one over here is telling me nothing, and I'm, I'm supporting her, my boxer. Well, my wife says, hey. What about my feet? Okay? And I think of this verse. You can't be nice to your dog and be mean to your wife. You just can't do it. If you're going to scratch your dog, you're going to scratch your wife. That's basically what I'm saying. That's Proverbs for you. So, I mean, this is a simple verse, but it is really incredible. I bet you'll never interact with an animal again without thinking of it. All right, so here's another one that I really loved. And I've, this was one that I used when I was a parent. That made me becoming a parent. Uh, it was my, my life verse from my own fathering, my own parenting. Give me your heart. It's the request of a father. Give me your heart, my son, and let your eyes delight in my ways. This is a profound statement. Maybe the most intimate thing a father asks his son in the entire Proverbs. And, and, and a father's talking to his kid all the time in Proverbs. He says, give me your heart. This is an, an intimate ask. You think about what it takes to tell your child, I want your, I, I want your heart. Will you give it to me? You say, what kind of man do you have to be for your child to give you your heart? Listen to what it says. Let your eyes delight in my way. Here's the Hebrew parallelism. What's he saying? Let your eyes delight in my ways. In other words, I hope you take such pleasure in my life and you say, I want to be that kind of person enough to where you will actually grant me your heart. So this is a kind of request. It takes a lot. Of, it takes a, I mean, that's a huge ask to ask someone for their heart. But the responsibility side of it means I got to be, I got to live the kind of life that would make my kids want to hand me their heart. It's the kind of thing only God would ask for, which makes me the middleman to some degree. I'm asking my kids for my heart, and in a sense, I'm saying, I want you to give your heart to me because I've given mine to God, and I want you to be connected to him. It's a profound statement, huge. But it's affected my parenting. So these are the verses. And then I have another verse. It's a final verse, and I don't think I'm going to comment on this verse. I just like it, so I just put it up there for you. 
All right? I'll let you read it, and you take it home with you any way you want. All right, so let's get it off the screen so it doesn't sit there. By the way, it said two other times in Proverbs. It's very important. Uh, But anyway, I'm not going to go there right now. So here's my three concerns for the book of Proverbs as we come to it. The first one is, I said, the motivation for the series. And here's what I want to say to you. Success is not everything. See, Proverbs is talking to the guy who wants to be wise so that if he does the right thing, then the right thing will happen kind of a thing, that he'll be, he'll be good. And that, this, this series sort of appeals to the pragmatic side of you. You say, oh, great, we're finally going to be in a book that will tell me something to do in my life, right? That's how some people think when they come to Proverbs. Well, here's the concern. The concern is, is that for those of you who are self-motivated and you're always looking to be better, how can I better my life? How can I do this better? How can I do this? Self-help guru. You just constantly trying to figure out how you can be a better person because you feel better about yourself when you're, when you're better. You like being smart. You like making the good choices. You like being the go-to guy. You like being the guy who's figured something out all the time. Or I'll tell you who else this series will appeal to. The person who's screwed up really badly and they're in a mess and they're looking for somebody to give them a little wisdom on how to get out. My marriage is down the tubes and I hope there's something on Proverbs on that. This is going down the tubes. I hope Proverbs has something to do with that because I need help. And then pretty soon what happens? And this is what happens. You, you start to turn your whole Christianity and relationship with God into sort of this uh, a moralism and let me get better and be successful at something. And what this series will probably do is reveal what you count most significant in your life and what you, where you find your security. And if it's not in God, you're going to be really disappointed. Because I'll tell you something about Proverbs, about wisdom literature in the Scriptures. Proverbs sits in the middle of two other books that are bookends to it. One of them is Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes' message is this. All of life is vanity. I don't care how good you are. I don't care how much you acquire. I don't care how smart you are. I don't care anything that you're successful at. If you do it without God, it ends up empty. That's what Proverbs teaches, or Ecclesiastes teaches. So if you go into Proverbs thinking, look, I'm just looking at this practically. And a lot of us view God practically. Hey, if I come to God, then my life ought to be better. And then pretty soon, that becomes your God and the place you get your significance and the place you get your security. And you're going to be really disappointed. Because it doesn't matter how good you are, how smart you are. So that's the first thing that I'm really concerned about, is that pragmatic approach to the spiritual life. Proverbs 16.2 says this, All the ways of a man are clean in his own sight, but the Lord weighs the motives. The Lord cares about the deep things of your heart, not just the outer things. So that's the first concern. Second one has to do with uh, your expectation for this year. So your motivation to want to hear Proverbs And then the second one is your expectation of the series, because here's the real point of this one, and that is the world is not really a neat, tidy little place. It's it's messed up. 
So you come to Proverbs and you see all these promises. Well, if you do this, then that's going to happen. If you do this, that's going to happen. And I will tell you that many of us live our spiritual lives just like that. Hey, God, and you might even be mad at God right now, truth be told. All of us deal with this. You know, I did this and this, and nothing worked out right. So when we define wisdom, this is what the Proverbs are going to ask you to do as he defines wisdom. Ask you to be competent in the, real, in the reality of life. The comp- competence in the reality of life. That you, know, you do what's true and right and you do it with good judgment. Sometimes doing the right thing at the wrong time can be miserable and failure. Think about taking care of the poor. I learned this lesson. You may have learned it too. But you could do the ethical thing and care and do the moral thing and help someone who's poor. It could very possibly, if you don't understand the complexities of poverty, you can hurt them more than help them by doing the right thing. Wisdom is so complex. Life is so complex. So it takes more than just an IQ a, you know, high IQ, that's not what Proverbs is trying to get you. Trying to get you to understand the complexities of life. And the reason I had Brian read Romans 8 is because he was speaking for wisdom, or Proverbs 8. Proverbs 8 is about, his wisdom is speaking and describing how she was present because she's personified as a woman because the, the Hebrew word is feminine in, Hebrew, uh, in Proverbs. And so she was present. She goes, I was there. He used me to mark the boundaries. I watched him do this. He used me to, to lay out how the world works. And that's what Proverbs will teach you. This is how the world works. This is how God designed it to work physically. You want to fly a plane? You better, you better understand aerodynamics or too bad for you. Okay, you want to, you want to live a, a good, you want to have a good relational life? You better understand how God made people in relationships. Or, because we've all messed that one up. How about financially? There are guidelines for how to do finances. They're pretty simple. You better do them the way God wants you to, or you're going to struggle. Just pick any category. God has designed the world to work a certain way, but key there are exceptions. Sometimes the farmer goes out and he kills himself to plant the field and, and, and plow the ground and, and, and he's hoping for an expectation. You, you'd think there'd be a crop, but a storm comes. Uh, and the sluggard, nothing good comes to the sluggard in Proverbs, except every now and then that guy gets a windfall. Right? The guy who never does anything, doesn't work hard at all, gets everything. And the guy that's out here killing himself just doesn't work. The parent kills themselves parenting. Proverbs 22.6. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, it will not depart from it. And you count on that, and then you do everything you can as a parent, and you lose your kid. Don't you know rotten parents that have good kids? Don't you want to punch him? You have rot, you got rotten parents have great kids. But then you just, then, so never, never ever take credit for your kids. 
You better be a good parent, but don't you dare take credit for your kids. Because there's some lousy parents who get good kids. It doesn't always work out. And I guarantee you've either been mad or you're mad right now at God because you think you've done what you should do. I had a guy recently uh, had a conversation with him. He said he goes to a, a church somewhere in our area. And uh, the pastor told him, if you give, take this 12-month challenge, give, God will bless you. And he gave exorbitantly and lost everything. He's mad at the church. He's mad at the pastor. He's mad at God. When he actually set up a meeting with the pastor, they told him his faith wasn't strong enough. See, wisdom, wisdom in Proverbs is more than just doing the right thing. Wisdom in Proverbs means I know how to relate to a God who's in charge of everything. That's why the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Not just doing the right thing. If you don't get that right. Now, we'll talk more about what that means next week. All I'm saying is the other book, <laughs> that is the other book in to Proverbs, is Job. <laughs> that's, no, that's wisdom literature. Probably the first book of the Bible written. And what better truth to give to humans who easily turn religion into a, well, if I do this, God, you owe me. And you know what you turn into? You turn into Job's friends. Because it's crystal clear Job was a righteous man and nothing in his life worked out. Lost everything valuable to a human being. And all his friends were coming around to him and saying this, well, you know what? You don't do this, you don't do this, you, just, you must have done something wrong because this is not how life works. And you know what Job is about? Job is, Job is about Job encountering a God who's bigger than A plus B equals C. Hey, Job, you're dealing with me. And yes, sometimes you do the right thing, but I have bigger plans. So do you trust me? What do you think Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 means when it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding? In all of your ways, acknowledge him. He directs paths. So you'll get to the point where you'll go, well, if I do this, this, and this, I ought to be able to carve out my own path. That's not how it works. You'd be greatly disappointed. I'll tell you what, in marriage, if you're married, I mean, speaking of the marriage conference coming up, sometimes you can be right and be dead wrong. Yeah, we know that happens. That's a picture of this. Doesn't, see, because the way relationships work, being logical is not always the right thing. Neither is being emotional. The way relationships work, that's not always, it's just not how it works. So, that'd be the second one that I would tell you about, your expectation. 
Because if you're just looking for God to just show you, hey, look, if you'll just do, all of us want from God that God just tell me what to do today so I'll be successful at the end of the day. But how many of us are trusting him for whatever he brings? Because you'll start depending on your goodness. And then you'll see where your security and your significance lie. And if it's not in him, you're going to be really disappointed. And then finally, let me ask you this question. You don't have to answer it out loud. I thought about doing it that way, but I don't want to. We're studying the book of Proverbs. We all know the primary author, although there's lots of writers in Proverbs, not just one person. If I asked you who the smartest man in the world was, I think if I read once, I read it 20 times over the last month, studying Proverbs, that Solomon was considered the wisest man in the world. And I would say amen to that until Jesus came. Nobody is smarter than Jesus. Why is that important? That is so important for this study. So important for this study. Because you cannot interpret or understand Proverbs if you don't do it through Jesus' eyes. Now, in 1 Kings 10, Queen Sheba, she uh, hears in in the ancient cultures, they all rallied around each other. They they were constantly looking for wisdom. We've got to know who's the smartest guy in the room at all times so that we can get advice when we need it. And I'm going to tell you, that's how you live. You have your gurus. You'll turn on the TV. You, you look for your guru. If, 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 if it's finances, you have a financial guru, possibly. If it's, if it's weightlifting or, or uh, working out, you probably have a guru who helps you nutritionally. You can watch. Now we got Snapchats. We got all this kind of stuff. You could be watching people do stuff. That you're seeing how they work out. You get your workouts from. You can do anything. If it's political, you have a political guy that you follow. Hope it's not O'Reilly. <laughs> you got somebody you follow for information. So that's what they did in that culture, too. Well, she hears Solomon's wise, and she's got some problems and some issues. So she comes to Solomon in 1 Kings 10. And, she, and it's a big old parade. She brings all these gifts. She's, she's got questions for him. She lays these questions out. And Solomon just destroys them. And she literally says in that text, I mean, people weren't even half right about how smart he is. Well, you get to Matthew chapter 12, and one of these days, one of these days, you and I are going to stand before someone, and it won't be Solomon, okay? It won't be Solomon. Listen to this text. I won't give you all of the background in it, but look what it says. The queen of the south is, is Queen Sheba. So Queen Sheba will rise up one day, and Jesus is speaking to the generation there, Israel, in Matthew 12. There a judgment will come, and she is going to show up at that judgment, just like she showed up in Solomon's day. She came from the ends of the earth to hear wisdom from Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Something greater than Solomon is here. You have never encountered anyone like Jesus, ever. So the question becomes, 
is he a guru to you? When you think about relationships, do you, does he come to your mind as the guy? When you think about finances and your future, does he come to your mind? Because that's who you're going to stand before. In other words, this is what Jesus is saying right here. You couldn't do anything more foolish than try to live your life without me. That's essentially what he's saying. I want to read something to you. When I, but this is over a decade ago. I uh, reading Dallas Willard, my favorite book of all time. Uh, I've well, let me just say that uh, I read something in it. I've never forgotten it. It's changed my perspective. So I want to read it to you. It's a little lengthy, but you'll like it. Here's what he says. And what he's speaking of is this sort of, we become Christians and we look to Jesus to save us because we think he's the only one who can do that. But he's not the best guy to sit next to you all day long and tell you how to live. And he's, just, he's speaking of this dichotomy and he goes, how in the world do we trust him to be the, the Lord of the universe to save us, but we don't look to him to live life? And so he writes this. Right at the heart of this alienation lies the absence of Jesus, the teacher, from our lives. Strangely, we seem prepared to learn how to live from almost anyone but him. We're ready to believe that the latest studies have more to teach us about love and sex than he does. That Louis Rukeyser knows more about finances. That Dear Abby can teach us more about how to get along with our family and our coworkers. That Carl Sagan is a better authority on the cosmos. We lose any sense of the difference between information, I love this line, and wisdom. And then we act accordingly. Just give me any piece of information to survive on today. Where we spontaneously look for information on how to live shows how we truly feel and who we really have confidence in. And nothing more forcibly demonstrates the extent to which we automatically assume the irrelevance of Jesus as teacher from our real lives. He goes on to say this. Our commitment to Jesus can stand on no other foundation than a recognition that he is the one who knows the truth about our lives and our universe. It is not possible to trust Jesus or anyone else in matters where we do not believe him to be competent. We cannot pray for his help and rely on his collaboration in dealing with real life matters we suspect might defeat his knowledge or abilities. Why would I trust him if he's not the smartest guy in the room? So he has this little section called the Master of Molecules I Love, and I just want you to worship in hearing it. Just worship in hearing it. At the literally mundane level, Jesus knew how to transform the molecular structure of water to make it wine. That knowledge also allowed him to take a few pieces of bread and some little fish and feed thousands of people. He could create matter from energy as he knew how to access from the heavens right where he was. It cannot be, it cannot be surprising that the feeding of the 5,000 led crowds to try to force him to be their king, surely one who could play on the energy matter equation like that could do anything. 
He could turn gravel into gold and pay off the national debt. Do you think he could get elected president or prime minister today? He knew how to transform the tissues of the human body from sickness to health and from death to life. He knew how to suspend gravity, interrupt weather patterns, and eliminate unfruitful trees without saw or axe. I love that one. He only needed a word. Surely he must be amused at what Nobel Prizes are awarded for today. In the ethical domain, he brought an understanding of life that has influenced the world. And it's thought more than any other. We shall see what this means in the chapters to follow, because that's what he does. And one of the greatest testimonies to his intelligence is surely that he knew how to enter physical death, actually to die, and then live on beyond death. That qualifies as smart. He seized death by the throat and defeated it. Forget cryonics. Death was was not something others imposed on him. He explained it to his followers in the moment of crisis that he could at any time call 72,000 angels to do whatever he wanted. But surely a mid-sized angel or two would have been enough to take care of those who thought they were capturing and killing him. He plainly said, nobody takes my life. I give it up by choice. I am in position to lay it down, and I'm in position to resume it. My father and I have worked all this out. (laughs) Isn't that great? Now, this is my favorite. This is what he says. All these things show Jesus' cognitive and practical mastery over every phase of reality, physical, moral, or spiritual. He is master only because he is maestro. Jesus is Lord can mean little in practice for anyone who has to hesitate before saying Jesus is smart. He's not just nice, he's brilliant. He's the smartest man who ever lived. He is now supervising the entire course of world history while simultaneously preparing the rest of the universe for our future role in it. Isn't that awesome? But have you, when was the last time you thought of Jesus as the smartest man ever to live? See, when you come to Jesus versus Solomon, everything about wisdom changes. Everything about wisdom changes because through the cross and what Jesus did and who he is changed a lot of things about how you look at reality. But didn't just change how you see reality and look at reality and see God and understand God. But what I can expect out of reality, listen to this. I love this verse. We'll look at 1 Corinthians 1 a little bit more. We, we won't be able to help it. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, in, you, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God. He became our wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that, so that it, as it is written, let him who boasts, boasts in the Lord. In other words, when, you, when Christ comes, no one anymore boasts in knowledge. No one's boasted about how smart they are anymore in light of what God has done to redeem humanity. And I'm going to tell you what this text means, at least this although there's tons more not going into it today. At least that Christ became wisdom to us means at least this, that one of the things we had to be saved for 
or saved from was what we think we knew. So we're so smart. We know how God does this, and we know who he likes, and we know who he doesn't like. If you do this, you're gonna, God's going to love you if you do this. And Christ and the cross, and that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, the foolishness of God blew the minds of the wisest among us. We had no idea what God was up to or what he was doing. And we became foolish. And I love this text because I'll tell you one of the worst things you can be in Proverbs. It's probably the worst thing you can be in Proverbs. And that is the guy who doesn't need anybody to tell him about something. I got this. I'm fine. I'll figure it out. Don't need your advice. Every single one of us sitting here today have an area of our lives that we feel exactly like that right now. And there is nothing more dangerous in the world. Here's what Proverbs 14 says. There is a way which seems right to a man, but the end is the way of death. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you what Christ does. He just totally humbles you. See, if you come to him, what did Paul say? No one boasts anymore. See, this guy boasts. He doesn't need to come to marriage conferences. He'll figure his marriage out on his own because he doesn't want anyone to tell him he's wrong. That he, can't, he can live with anything but the idea that he's screwing up and it's his fault and he can't figure it out. So God help me, I'm not going to a marriage conference where somebody's going to tell me I can't do something right or I don't know what I'm doing because I know what I'm doing. Put any category of that in your life. And I'm going to tell you, Jesus won't be able to speak to you. Because when you come to Christ, he humbles you. And you realize what he's done for you. The wisdom of God is the cross. The cross becomes then the picture of wisdom for the believer. You want to be powerful? You become weak. You want to be famous? You become humble. The cross teaches you how to live life. Without him, you can't do it. And I love this. I love that Jesus saves us from our foolishness. So right now, one of two things. Either you've always had this idea that God is going to be, at the end of time, happy with you, like when the Queen of Sheba and everybody shows up at the end, you've got your answer for God. What you're going to tell him as to why you ought to get into heaven. And you've completely thrown out his wisdom and why you went to a cross, and why your good works can't get you to heaven, and never will. You're convinced this is how God operates, but the cross tells you that is not how God operates. And then there's another person in here. It's not the person who isn't saved. There's some of you who have come to Christ, but you completely, you kick against the goads, as Paul would say. You constantly do the opposite thing Jesus would tell you to do. And right now you can just feel your world start to crumble because you've got this. You've got this. And see, when Christ comes into your life, you realize you've got nothing. He's got to save us. He doesn't just have to save us that one all-important time. He's got to save me every day from that thought in my head 
that I know what I need to know. So, if we're going to study the book of Proverbs, I'm going to remind you every single week, if I don't do anything well in this series, that Jesus is the smartest person you've ever encountered. And if he's not the guru of your life, it, it cannot sustain itself. We'll see that as we go through this book. So bow your heads with me. Father, we come before you now because even right now, we, we can feel that feeling rising up in us where we think we know what we need to know. And we've been disappointed a lot because we've had expectations of you. We've had ideas about how you ought to be. And it's not working. And the truth is, we've just never really let you run our lives. We've never said, you are the one really in charge. I will trust you for how things work out. And we just continue to operate the way we think is right. And it's destroying us. I know I have some of those ways in me right now. I pray for everyone in this room who's who's got some of that self-destructive attitude. No one can tell them what's wrong with them. And Father, if they won't listen to you, they won't listen to anyone else. If they can't accept the humble death of, of God himself, They certainly won't listen to any other counsel. So I pray you'll open our eyes and our hearts, Father, that we'll start to face the reality that we need to be saved from what we think we know. Save us from our foolishness, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.